Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, in Luke 24, we have one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. Luke unwinds this narrative slowly, filled with patience and irony. And following the crucifixion of Jesus, we find two of Jesus' disciples walking away from Jerusalem. Now, the sense of shock and loss that they've experienced is palpable. They had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover, thinking that a new Passover might be breaking out right in their present day, led by this incredible rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. But... Instead of the first glimmers of a new hope, a revolution, or a movement to overthrow the Romans, they had watched in horror as Jesus had been crucified, subjected to the, to, to the might of the Roman Empire, Rome displaying Jesus as a reminder to all of the Jewish people that they should accept their lot in life that they are subjects and they should forget all of those stories about being the cherished and chosen people of God. And so these two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem, deflated, trying to make sense of everything that they have experienced. Now, I want to treat this story today in four distinct movements. We're in week two of a teaching series called Looking Along. And the focus and hope of this series is that we begin to see the beauty of the Jesus story and God the Father, Spirit and Son as the source of every longing that we share as humans. These longings of beauty, the longing to understand and to know, the longing for justice, the longing for home. And so as we pick up this story today, we're looking at our collective human longing to understand. And so we pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, and we begin in verse 13. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village. This is Easter Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. They were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near, and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. This is such a subtle and beautiful story and such subtle and beautiful storytelling by Luke. These two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem discussing what has unfolded and the resurrected Jesus walks up beside them and starts walking with them. But it says that their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And Jesus has a profound sense of humor. We should never miss this. So Jesus, with no shortage of irony and humor, asked the two disciples, oh, what is it that you're talking about? Now, we could say this another way. Two people are trying to make sense of their world, trying to find a map that will hold the things that they thought to be true and the things that they hoped to be true. And Jesus meets them right there in the middle of that discernment, in the middle of that process. Now, perhaps you've been there. 
Perhaps you can remember fondly those late night conversations in your dorm room, trying to make sense of the world and certain that you had most of the world figure out. Or, or maybe in your current life now, you're a research scientist and you want to believe in Jesus, but you're still trying to make sense of how the resurrection of Jesus could fit within any plausible accounting of the universe. Or you study philosophy or history or politics and the story of Jesus when viewed through the lens of the thoughts and acts of humanity throughout the history of the world just seems incoherent and idealistic. Perhaps you're a believer now and you wonder about the state of the world. How could God be in any sense good when there is so much suffering in the world? How can a good and loving God be caring for and preserving the world when it seems as if we have hopelessly broken our environment? How can there be any talk of justice or a just God when it seems that black people, especially in America, have suffered inordinately for centuries? I don't know what your questions are today. But I want you to notice something that is so profound here in our story in Luke 24. Jesus meets these two as they're walking away from Jerusalem, walking away in disappointment and in deflation. He meets these two in their questions. And what's better, and I love this about Jesus, he asks them a question. This gets at the very heart of what I love so much about the scriptures and the narrative of the Bible story. I don't love the Bible as some sort of a cosmic heavenly answer book. The Bible itself never claims to contain all the answers, but the Bible asks all the questions. Jesus meets us just there's such an insignificance to these two, but there's such a beauty in this story, this story that has been told for centuries. Jesus meets us on the road of our questions and expresses concern for what concerns us. He meets us when we are trying to piece together the world. He is a companion on the journey of trying to put those puzzle pieces in place. Ecclesia. Jesus is not repelled by our questions. He doesn't distance himself from them. He draws near right in the midst of them. So movement one, Jesus drawing near. Jesus meeting us in our questions. And we have four movements. We'll move on to movement two. Let's go on in the story. Luke 24, verse 18. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So here we begin movement two, a movement we'll call rumors of resurrection. It is seriously hilarious that Jesus lets these two explain to him what has happened about himself. 
the two express their hopes in the form of their own story. Uh, verse 21 shows them saying, we had hoped he was the one. The, the, the one to redeem Israel. Uh, the, the shorthand of this story, the redemption of Israel, is that he would be the one uh, to return the glory of God to the temple. That forgiveness of sins would be brought about. The end of exile under the Messiah. The ruler would, would get rid of their Roman oppressors and he would be the one to sit on the throne of David. One oversimplified way of telling the story is that they'd hoped that Jesus would be the one to lead them in glorious victory and restore proper worship in the temple. Jesus' contemporaries, N.T. Wright says, had their hearts and heads full of wrong ideas, and he constantly ran the risk that they would hear that what he was saying within the context of these wrong ideas, and that they would twist it completely out of shape. These two go on to say that some of the women had hinted that they had seen a vision of angels and that they had said that Jesus was in fact alive. But notice, these two in Luke 24 are not walking towards the tomb of Jesus. They are walking away from Jerusalem, walking away from this possibility, but profoundly sad, completely crestfallen because their hopes have been dashed. Now, last week we talked about the notion of a closed, disenchanted universe. And here we see this concept in action in a first century context. These two disciples walking away from Jerusalem towards Emmaus had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. And there were glimmers, rumors of hope and possibility, but they chose the rationality of comfort, the comfort of their own story, rather than a hope of a surprising story. And in this instance of a closed universe, there is no expectation that there might be more than meets the eye at work here. They had hoped that Jesus was the liberating king, but as they saw with their own eyes, he was crucified by the Romans. End of story. Walk away sad. It is what it is. And perhaps you can relate to this kind of disappointment. Perhaps in your own search for coherence, you have experienced this. Perhaps you have heard rumors. Rumors that God loves you unconditionally, but you still place your own conditions on God's love for you. Perhaps you've heard rumors of the possibility of a thoroughly Christian rationale, but you are content to believe slogans and cliches. We experience a tension when the rumors of resurrection don't fit with our expectation or the assumed story of our culture. When God doesn't show up the way that we wanted to or that we think we needed to, we experience this kind of loss of hope. But... It's in that place, in that exact tension, where God comes near to us and reveals more of himself to us. He walks alongside of us, asking us questions. And even though we may be narrating the completely wrong story, he is patient. He is gentle. He walks alongside it. And whether it be in our own questions about the world and the way it works, or our own anxieties about whether God will truly provide for our needs, God meets us in our half-hearted expectations, and He asks us to narrate to Him the story about Himself. God meets us in our resignation that the rumors are simply too good to be true. And so in the story, we see the second movement, these rumors of resurrection. 
These two disciples are walking to Emmaus away from Jerusalem. There are glimmers of hope in the story, but it just seems too good to be true. We move on to movement three, the story that illuminates every other story. Now, there's something about wisdom that Jesus puts into practice here that waits, waits to speak, waits to act. And here, We've seen the resurrected Jesus just patiently meandering with these two, asking them questions, listening. And now, as wisdom does, has patiently waited, exhausted all the possible answers. Now it's Jesus' turn to speak. Look in verse 25. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. Now, I don't get the sense that he was he's belittling these two disciples or he's somehow exasperated with them, but his remarks reveal the clarity of the cross. Jesus takes these two disciples, they are privy to the best Bible study that has ever been given. I mean, seriously, the author of the autobiography, the story that's literally all about Jesus, tells those disciples exactly how it all fits together. He takes the time to narrate the story again. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus' narration of this story is an act an act of deconforming the imaginations of these two companions on the road to Emmaus to the patterns of this world. In their mind, Jesus could only be the one to redeem Israel with the use of the sword. But Jesus' weapon of warfare is not a sword that sheds the blood of his enemies. It's a cross that sheds and gives of his own blood. And by this cross, he culminates the story that has been from the beginning, the story of a God created the world in delight and in joy, words creating worlds, the story of promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. Jesus is God's faithfulness enacted in a person. Look at it this way. Uh, Our kids at our house like to jump off the stairs from our second floor to our first floor into my arms. Our kids are not huge daredevils, so we're not talking like the top step or anything, but they jump off the steps and I catch them and then I pull them close for a hug. Now, imagine if sometimes I decided to catch them and sometimes I let them hit the ground. Do you suppose that there would be any joy in jumping off the steps? Probably not, right? They probably wouldn't do that anymore. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. As Jesus is the answer to our longest longings to understand, to know, to make sense of this world, all of our explanations, everything that makes sense of this world, whether it be the question, who is God? Whether it be the question, who are we? Whether it be theories of physics or mathematics, whether it be beautiful music or the way that children in our lives just naturally embody this question, to know, to make sense of things, to ask why, to explore, all of it, all of it that brings any coherence or harmony to our world stems from the faithfulness of God.
the Father embodied in our lives, embodied in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, testified by the Holy Spirit. Look at what Ephesians 1 verse 10 says. It tells us that in Him, in Jesus Christ, everything in heaven and on earth is summed up. Colossians 2 verse 4 tells us that all treasures of wisdom and of knowledge are revealed in the mystery of Christ Jesus. And look at what it says in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. He meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself, get this, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Did you catch that language in Colossians 1? How comprehensive it is, how harmonious it is, to use our phrase from last week, how congruent it is. You see, we do ourselves a disservice when we build up these categories in our lives, when we determine that one thing is sacred, one thing is secular. Look at the language of Colossians 1. It is inviting us to see all things under the beautiful reign and rule of Christ Jesus. Jesus' story is the story that illuminates every other story. Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17 tells those inquirers trying to make some sense of the resurrection that in Jesus we live and we move and we have our being. The story of Jesus is the lens through which every story, all things in heaven and on earth are summed up and fit together. It makes our life fit together. It brings integrity to our lives. And it means that everything matters. And so whether you're a researcher or whether you work in accounting and you just have this impulse to order and to make sense of things, this is an impulse that reflects the beautiful uh, design of Jesus Christ. And, and my hope as your pastor, Ecclesia, is to help you, to help you to see that the story of Jesus brings to life every other story in our lives. It brings to life our desires. It brings to life our passions to see the world healed, to see new possibilities brought forth. In Him, all things are summed up. All things fit together. All things are reconciled. The story of Jesus cleanses our perceptions. It's cleaning the lens through which we look at the world. It invites us to repent to change our thinking, the Greek word metanoia, which has the sense of the renewal of our paradigms and our perceptions, as Paul would say, the renewal of our mind. It helps us to wonder again, to see that it is what it is, is never the story of this world, that this story is written by the great I am, that our cycles of sinfulness, injustice, and distraction have been broken in by the story of Jesus. And Jesus is calling us to see every story, every question, every inch of this beautiful world that God has made and called good in light 
of his story. The poet Emily Dickinson, in a passage that has been uniquely profound in my life, writes, In a serener bright, in a more golden light, I see each little doubt and fear, each little discord here removed. Jesus is that serener bright. He is the point of all creation. He is the one who makes sense of it all. A theologian, David Bentley Hart, writes, When, however, we learn in Christ the nature of our first estate and the divine destiny to which we are called, we begin to see that there is in all things of earth a hidden glory waiting to be revealed, more radiant than a million suns, more beautiful than the most generous imagination or our most ardent desire can conceive. So this third movement, the story that illuminates every other story, aids us on our quest for understanding. So we've seen these three movements. First, Jesus draws near to us in our questions. He meets us on the road. Uh, the, the second movement, that there are rumors of resurrection. We live in this Christ-haunted world. Even though our universe and our cultural story says that the world is closed, there are glimmers of another world. And the third movement, the story illuminates every other story. Now we move on to our fourth movement. And when he was at the table, it says in verse 30, he, he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? As this scene ends and they sit down to a meal, Jesus removes the veil by sharing the table with them, by blessing, by breaking, and by giving bread. This is the fourth movement in this scene as we examine our shared collective longing for understanding. The story is a means of welcoming the very real presence of God. The story narrates not something that just happened long ago, but something that happens. The risen Christ still meets people like you and me with his very real presence, his transforming presence, his healing presence. He shares his resurrection life with us. He blesses us, inviting us to see that God's fundamental posture towards the world is still blessing. He breaks the bread, inviting us to see and reminding us of his life broken for the sake of the world. And he gives because God is the God who gives without end, abundantly and extravagantly. Even death on a cross the resurrected Christ bears witness to even death on a cross cannot stop God's abundant giving of himself. And in that moment, as he shares this meal with these two disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem because they had no category, no plausibility structure for what Jesus was doing in overcoming the world, raising from the dead, in that moment, their eyes are opened and the veil is lifted. The two disciples, in their stunned surprise, awaken to a new reality, the reality of the new world that is breaking forth right in the midst of this one. And they reflect, were our hearts not burning within us as he opened the scripture for us? The poet William Blake writes it this way, Unless the eye catch fire, the God will not be seen. Unless the ear catch fire, the God will not be heard. Unless the tongue catch fire, the God will not be named. Unless the heart 
catch fire, the God will not be loved. And unless the mind catch fire, the God will not be known. You know, in the house I spent the most of my high school years in, in Oklahoma, we had this solid four to six inch wide wooden banister that lined the stairs. And the stairs met you almost immediately as you walked in the front door. And on that banister, from a fateful night some 18 years ago, carved into the wood, was a long scratch. And as soon as you walked in the door, you could see it. That the, that the banister had been defaced and had been scratched by something. And I have to confess, it was me who did it. And on a night some 18 years ago, I met Jesus. Uh, my heart was burning within me. I knew somehow and in some way that this Jesus story, though at this point I knew very little of this story, in some way was my own story. I knew that he loved me and that he had given himself for me. I knew that in some way, though, though the world was still the same color, that life from that moment was different. Though what that would mean and all that that would entail, I had no idea. And though I, I'm not typically the type to, to sort of explode in impulses of, uh, you know, kind of random joy, but on that night, as I was walking down the stairs, there was so much joy in my heart that I just slid down the banister. And on my jeans, there was a, a metal button that was on the, on the seat of my pants, and it just scratched the banister all the way down. And somehow, as I marked that banister, with this random expression of joy, somehow, it, it was a testimony, an Ebenezer stone marking the moment where God had etched his love and his name on my heart. And since I have spent my life with a faith-seeking understanding, so much that I don't know now, so much that I didn't know then, but the promise has held that his life his resurrection life shared with me, beginning in that moment in my teenage years, has been enough to sustain, has been enough to ask and to hold every question. It has been an invitation to more the deep things of God calling to the deep things in me. And this journey for me has entailed many different journeys. And God has blessed me with a, with a vocation where I get to explore uh, these questions prayerfully and I get to help be a guide for others to do that. But here's what I want to say to you. The way to a mind where the veil is lifted is a heart that is burning. It doesn't mean that every conversion of our lives will be marked by some sort of ecstatic experience, but the very real presence of Jesus, his love made manifest in our lives will draw us near and will bring us into his resurrection life. And as we've surveyed this story in four movements, I want to invite you to see that your quest for understanding, your longing to know, is God-given. It is placed in you by a God who wants to reveal himself to you. Your, your sense for order is a reflection of God's design of the world, the beautiful and dynamic and explosive world that he made in the beginning, brimming with life, full of joy. Our first movement of understanding is to respond to the burning in our hearts, that glimmer, that rumor of resurrection that says that it all might be true.
to know that he is drawing near to you, to know that he got up out of that grave against all odds and against every story that was somehow plausible in that culture. Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And on the third day, by the power of the Spirit, God the Father vindicated him as the Savior of all the world for all of time. And I want to invite you to just begin to see where, where you might be at in this journey. You see, I don't think these journeys are linear. I don't think every uh, sort of conversion or every exploration in our mind follows these four movements. But are you asking questions? Are you just wrestling? I want to invite you to see that God is meeting you there. Do you hear those rumors of resurrection and are you walking away, walking away from the possibility that they might be true? I want you to see that Jesus is meeting you in that space as well. Do you need to just invest your life in the story to see that the story is so much better than the slogans, to see that the story expands and illuminates every other story? I want to invite you into that space to see that in Him all things hold together. And perhaps there's just a burning in your heart today, a burning that testifies that just like those two disciples, as Jesus was narrating the story about himself from the scriptures, they couldn't help, they hardly couldn't contain it. But when their, the veil was lifted, when they saw Jesus for who he was in the breaking and the blessing and the giving of bread, they saw that this story was their story, that their hopes and their dreams and all that they had longed for had been given to them and more. Friends, I want to invite you to see that your longing for understanding is a longing that reflects God's longing to know you. And he gave his son so that he would know you and that you would know yourself in light of his love. Ecclesia, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Jesus, you, you invite us, God, to explore, God, to, to pursue, to ask the questions. You don't hold our questions at arm's length, God. You don't, you don't turn us away in our doubts. And in the places where we're just not sure, God, you draw near. So God, would you help us to see that our questions are an invitation to intimacy. God, our questions are trying to make sense of the world, are an invitation to know the God of the universe even more deeply. And though, yes, we will find, we will find that we come up upon cliffs of our ability to know, that we stand on the abyss of mystery at times. God, that you are not withholding things from us just to tease us, God. You are not withholding things from us just to keep us in darkness, God. But you are slowly and patiently walking alongside of us, asking us again to narrate to you the story, to, to, to asking us again to, to, to experience your love drawing near to us. And ultimately, God, all of our desire to know is a desire to receive from your hand that which has been blessed, that which has been broken, that which has been given, which is the life of your very Son. So Jesus, we ask that you would help us to see that your story illuminates every other story. And God, I pray for those whose hearts are burning within them, God, who may have been just in kind of a dark uh, valley of, of doubt and, and feeling like none of it makes sense anymore, that is it worth going on? Or maybe you've never experienced God's love and this is the first time you've heard this story. I pray 
I pray that you'll just know that that heart burning is a testimony of the truth of the story as the risen Christ draws near to you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your life. Blessed, broken, and given for us. It's in your name we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.